We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. Joining me for this episode is Jonas Munkfold. He is a UEFA B coach and has a degree in football studies and has also written and published a couple of ebooks that I highly recommend checking out and I'm going to talk about with him on this podcast. So we've done quite a few podcasts on player development, but we haven't done anything specifically on 1v1 play. So this one will focus on the model that Jonas has put together along with the work that he's researched in that specific area. So we're going to talk about session design, decision making, coaching 1v1 moves, the process of giving feedback to youth players, why are we not developing dribblers anymore, and then we take a look into early specialization from a European perspective that I think a lot of coaches in the US are going to find really interesting. So a lot to cover. I think you're really going to enjoy it. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts at Gary Kernin on Instagram, at Gary Kernin on Twitter. Before we begin, I would like to say a big thank you to Sports Lab 360, who have teamed up with us on this podcast. If you haven't already, you've got to get on your phone or laptop, check out their interactive soccer IQ platform that will help you get the absolute most out of your players. At the midway point of this podcast, I'm going to speak to founder of the program, Nick Manzoni, for a minute or two, so be sure to look out for that. Okay, here is Jonas. Enjoy. Jonas, thank you so much for joining me today on the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Really excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So we're going to talk about player development, but more specifically into 1v1 work. You were just talking about just before we start recording. 1v1 work is probably misinterpreted by a fair amount in the in the soccer community, in the coaching community. When I was growing up, it was two players standing facing each other in a 10 by 10 square, one with the ball, one defending, go at it for 15, 20 minutes. How have we evolved from there? Or how should we have evolved from there in the modern game today? Uh, it's a good question. I'm not sure we have evolved as much as uh, we, we possibly should. Uh, I think there's still a huge difference between how one we ones look in the game versus how they look in, in most trainings. For instance, 70% of the one we ones in the game are not face-to-face. But when this is practiced, it's almost exclusively uh, the box that you speak of where there's one defender, one attacker, and they face each other. And these, these 1v1 abilities so so valuable with teams tactically being so good, so compact, often lying very deep. You need those one-to-one experts to unlock the defense and sort of create that imbalance, imbalance you need to score. It's quite ironic that we're all in love with this possession football, obviously the type that Barca have promoted over the past 15 years. So much of coaches want to produce that with their players but in the midst of these the team's ability and possession it it does come down to 
the player's ability, individual ability to exploit space or create space in 1v1 areas. And do you think we've overlooked that ability as a coaching community? I think so, because when you, when you think of what you try to achieve, that you try to create some sort of numerical superiority, often a 2v1 or, or similar. But then if you have a player who is really good dribbling or who can run with the ball really well, um, as soon as he's gone past one player, there you have the superiority straight away. And that's it's something that we overlook a lot also in trainings where we often train with floaters. For instance, all these Barcelona exercises you can find online, they often have a, quite a big overload for the offensive team. So there's 4v2, 4v4 plus 3. And if you're playing 7, to four, seven versus 4 in a small area, uh, when are the players ever going to run with the ball or dribble? It will mostly just be passing and passing. And that's what the players will learn as well. So there is such thing as having too much possession, too much passing? I think so, because if you look at the best players in the world, they are all capable of outplaying 1v1 in some way. It's not just the Neymar way of outplaying 1v1, but if you look at Sergio Busquets in his prime, he, w- he was unplayable. He was so good. Like it was impossible to mark him. Um, look at Iniesta, the way he just slides past players. And it's not just that dribbling, but they have a way of being very difficult to play against because of how they prepare to receive the ball, how they receive the ball and how they go on. So going back to my youth days, and we're talking 25 plus years ago where I was doing these exercises that that should be redundant by now you know because we have we are a better educated coaching community number one number two is the game has changed but if you look at pre-season exercises and you look at teams that promote you know that show their clips day one of pre-season and even if it's defensive principles they are starting in this this defender backtracking 1v1 facing each other and why have we not moved on from that then, Jonas? Why do we? Is it because of the coach's ability to teach? Is it coach's creativity? Is it? What do you think? I'm not sure. It's a big question. I think a lot of it stems down from how coach education is typically run, where the coach educator just tells from his or her experience how football training should look like instead of referring to the game and using the game as a reference for how, how we should train and what we should prepare for. Uh, because if we, if, we, if we look at the game and we look at all the different 1v1s there, we can create a lot of really good 1v1 exercises. But if we just do what the coach educator did 20 years ago, uh, we'll just keep doing the same, the same thing. Let's look now at, at coaching it. I wanted to get your thoughts on coaching the decision during the dribble. So this is I'm really fascinated by this because, again, it's a talking point on social media saying good try, good try when something doesn't work. You know, is that is that I suppose uh, ineffective coaching? You say in the ebook that a player must be guided to discover when executing the moves, which I interpret as 
uh, allowing them the opportunity to experience success and failure and and work through that process what are some examples of how this is done and then i suppose does the same apply to choosing the right decision after the dribble when does the the technical component start or finish and when does the decision making component start or finish or is it all the same process it's a very complex dynamic there so instead of interfering too much with the ball carrier what i tend to do is coach the players around so that the ball carrier has opportunities to pass uh, several ways and to uh, and to dribble if that's what they choose to do um, but by constructing the by constructing the situation um, he or she should be in a position where they can choose their own solution and then after after the situation um, I'd rather go to go and, and speak and evaluate that with them so instead of showing them or telling them this is how you should do it this is what you should do and this is how you should do it um, I prefer to let them discover what works for them in the given situation and help them guide them along the way um, for instance in regarding sort of specific moves there isn't one specific way to execute a dribble if you think about a uh, step over for instance uh, Sergio Mane, Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi will all, will do this very differently but all uh, does it effective, uh, effectively with the sort of physiology and uh, the player identity that they have. Uh, so there's no definite right way of doing it, but there's just a few general principles to follow or to avoid with a dribble. Allowing the player a certain amount of freedom and flexibility or creativity to produce a little bit of a move. So you're not someone who believes that we should be all right, Johnny, whenever you receive the ball there, Susie, you didn't bend your knees enough in the double scissors that you executed. You don't believe in, in the efficiency or effectiveness of that? Mostly not. Mm. There's a time and place for it. But generally, I believe that as long as they get to repeat the movement enough in a, in a good situation, uh, they will also discover that they should bend their knees more. If if that's what they should, but all the best in the world, they do it in their own, in their own way, uh, unique way that's functional for them, because their physiology is different. The situations they get in are different. Football is so complex that it's never the same situation twice, and the best players are able to read off signals from the uh, direct opposition, and do something to trick them. So lead them over to the wrong foot and then exploit that or um, take advantage of them in another way. So whenever you follow up with the player after the decision, that, that guided discovery, mm. that feedback, how do you balance or how do you believe coaches should balance basically? You can fall into a rut as a coach where the, the decision wasn't right and the, the coach has 20 other ways you could have done it. Uh, how do you balance between coaching where it's just outcome-based, where it's, hey, that didn't work, try this. Or do you also try, that did work, but 
dot 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 you could have done x y or z i think it's important to see the players when they are good and to sort of encourage that good behavior that we want to see more of um while always just reminding them of the of the general principles like for instance there's a principle that when we win the ball the first thing we should look after or should look for is the goal then we should look for teammates higher up the pitch then we should look for teammates sort of around us and deeper um and if a player passes it backwards and it's a good pass uh, we keep possession i can still remind that player next time remember to look look for the goal first and then look for teammates uh, higher up the pitch so that we can score a goal or create a chance and then if none of that's possible play the safe pass like you did now i really enjoyed your book it's a it's a bit of a hybrid of different philosophies, different uh, sources of inspiration. You've listed Tim Lees, who we've had on the podcast, fantastic, fantastic guy, as one of your sources of inspiration. I was wondering what specifically you picked up from Tim that, that took your work in a certain direction. Tim Lees is a coach I really admire. His webinar on developing the Maverick with uh, Inspire Coach Education a few years ago made me realize how little I knew about one we ones and how important they could be, both in a team setting and sort of for individual player development. And so since then, I, I started uh, just researching and, and analyzing one we ones situations, one we one abilities. <laughs> I just put it into a document for sort of for my own sake, just to keep notes. And then it developed to be quite big, and that's that's the one we own model now that you that you speak about now. And it's just the way that he worked to develop the universal and position specific moves were like a a light bulb mo- moment for me, and I've I've been very inspired by that way of working. So that's hugely influential on me now when I work to design role-specific sessions or um, working on 1v1 skills. That 1v1 breakdown in the, in the e-book, the 1v1 objectives of each position, mm. it, it's, it is fascinating because cause you're looking as well as starting positions, you're looking at angles of pressure, and then you're looking at, I suppose, different outcomes, right, based on where they're going to receive the ball, where they're going to come out of it, what options are going to be placed in. I hate asking this question, but <laughs> what age, you know, at what level do coaches, I suppose, start looking at at specialists in in terms of their uh, in terms of their positioning, or does it become? A, do you look for certain commonalities between each position, and then just when they're ready to b- break through, you push them in that direction, or or what's your thoughts on that? I don't think that we need to specialize them into one position, but I think that we should teach the principles or the the basic moves of what moves are good when you receive the ball outside of the line or outside of the defensive line. So in a fullback or winger situation, what moves are use- useful when you receive in front of a defensive line? What moves are useful when you receive in between two defensive lines or between players? And then once they know these, once they have a general idea in 
um, a basic sort of understanding of this, then we can take it on to uh, more position specific. But I would first introduce, okay, um, you receive the ball in front of the pressure. That's the most sort of basic one. Receiving in front of pressure, uh, trying to turn and play forward. And then, okay, you're now between lines. You're between two players. Uh, can you receive the ball and play forwards or go forwards? And then sort of out wide, you receive the ball there. You want to go in. Most likely the the defender, there's one pressing you and there's one covering. Uh, so it's either a 1v1 or a 1 versus 2 situation. How do you deal with that? What sort of moves are efficient in these situations? What role models do we have? I'm a huge believer in, in that role models can create learning, and help us create learning. So for a, a winger, it's a lot more powerful to watch a compli compilation of Sadio Mane than listen to me speak uh, about the moves. I think that's something that's quite underrated. Especially in the coaching community where we enjoy the sound of our own voice, don't we? We do. We love it. <laughs> Another one that it's almost a daily argument on social media, as I'm sure you're aware, opposed versus unopposed. It sounds like you do a mixture of both in terms of ball mastery with the game as a reference that you refer to. Yeah. How is this achieved? How's the balance achieved? Um, ball mastery is a great tool to develop a relation with the ball and uh, a football-specific coordination. My concern is that it's often used just to create circus artists. Uh, so that's why we need the game, some of the principles from the game, and apply that in our um, ball mastery exercises. And you can, I try to do that by having all all of the, all the players moving around um, in the same area, so that they constantly have to scan, uh, look around, protect the ball. And then sometimes they have to protect the ball from me or another coach. Sometimes they have to protect the ball from each other. Just looking at different ways of um, ball retention. Sometimes having a competition where it's about um, having the best dribble or the coolest dribble even. And they have 45 seconds just to do whichever they want. Uh, me and the coaches are judges. The the winner uh, gets to choose a dribble that the rest of the team will do for the next 45 seconds or one minute. And that player will then help us guide and, and coach as well. And it's just a lot of competitions that we can do. Uh, my sort of ball mastery favorite competition is uh, a King of the Ring version where everyone tries to kick out uh, the other players' footballs while protecting their own. And once the ball is out of play, they can come in and, and steal someone else's ball. So at one point, then you have uh, 10 kids running after two balls and the, the two remaining balls change its owners. And it's just the last last one who has possession of a ball wins. It's a very good, good way to sort of end the ball mastery bit and move on to the next next part of the session, I think.
is that I suppose the old fashioned technical warm up, and then you're advancing and then to small sided games to keep the connection between the game as a reference. Is it all, or is it one individual session that's all ball mastery, or how's that achieved? Uh, it would depend on the age and the sort of the side session outcome. Typically, I would do ball mastery for eight to fifteen minutes. And then move into um, a positional game, like the Rondo exercises or the Barcelona exercises that we spoke about earlier. But instead of always having the overload, the defensive team, when they win the ball, would be in an underload with a different task. So, for instance, if you have the traditional 4 versus 2 Rondo, when the players in the middle win the ball, they have to try to score in a mini-goal or dribble out the square. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly uh, constantly working on developing that one-on-one mentality as well as ability. I love that. So it's connected even to the, to the defensive side because sometimes you do get that, right? The disengagement comes between the defensive players in the rondo because mm-hmm. we, we sometimes overlook that. Um, but you're saying there is to manipulate the session to challenge them as well. If we want to develop good one one v one players, we have to we have to start with the defenders. We have to start by teaching that ball winning ability, ball winning mentality. Uh, and once that's good, we can start teaching the dribble part of it and the offensive side. Because otherwise there won't be a challenge. Uh, so for the players to be challenged with the ball, the defenders need to be a little bit better than them. And so every time the the attackers are good, we need to help the defenders become a little bit better. And then you can also develop the creative problem solving because the task they have to do uh, keeps evolving, keeps progressing, keeps getting more and more difficult and they have to look for new solutions all the time. We will just take a quick break here. There's not a week that goes by where I don't talk with other coaches about player intelligence, decision making and soccer IQ. It's been a hot topic in the coaching community for a long time and we've teamed up with Sports Lab 360 for this podcast who are helping coaches at all levels tackle this with their players. So please check out what they're doing in this area. But before you do, I have some quick questions for founder Nick Manzoni. Nick, thanks for teaming up with us on the podcast. Gary, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So how specifically does Sports Lab 360 help coaches? Yeah, so I guess I'll put it this way. Um, Any youth coaches who are listening, take a second, think about how much time and training is spent on the foundational tactical elements. Um, So not your higher level, you know, style specific things, but the things like, you know, the small correction of a poor angle, poor execution on an attacking run, uh, failing to recognize that a switch of play was on, you know, these things that can really add up and dominate a session. Um, So by using Sports Lab 360, you would assign your players one of our modules that coincides with what you're working on. So your players are then showing up with a complete knowledge and understanding of that principle, um, which ultimately will allow you to drive player and team development just at a much quicker rate. What's an example of a module? Yeah, so we have different categories. Um, you know, one of them is core tactical principles. These are not you know formation or style of play specific. You know, moving off the ball, creating angles, 
different things like that. Um, and then we have formation-specific modules um, focused on positional roles, attacking shape, defensive shape, etc. cetera. Uh, and then each module is made up the same. Um, it's like a video with game film to introduce the topic. And it's then a 3D animated interactive lesson where a scenario will play out and then players will be challenged to select the best option, um, always, you know, based on the appropriate level of context. Um, and then the third piece is a quiz allows players to review and then allows coaches to see how their players are scoring um, on that module. So where can coaches find out more information? Yeah, the best way is just going to be to get on the website, um, which is www.sportslab360.com. And if you go to the demo page, you can work through a couple of our demo modules and get a feel for what they sort of offer. Uh, and then if you have specific questions, my contact info is also on the website. So feel more than free to shoot me an individual note. Any special offers for MSC listeners? Yeah, so anyone listening gets 20% off with the code MODERNSOCCERXL, and this is good for an individual, a team, or a club subscription. Thank you, Nick. Coaches, please check out sportslab360.com. Check out their work. Thank you. Back to Jonas. A few lines in your book that I wanted, the ebook that I wanted to, to run past you. The first is... Every action must be executed at 100%, every practice for the player to reach 101%. When I watch young players do individual work online, now granted, the, the, the context to game is, is not very realistic. I mean, you're talking about summer programs where someone's doing 150 toe taps in 30 seconds. And it's it, it just seems that Everyone's in a rush to get the, to do things at, at maximum speed. But when I watch the greats, and and I was I was never a great dribbler, but even even this morning I was I was in the gym, I was going through YouTube, had Ronaldinho, had a bit of Maradona on, and you, <laughs> the change of direction and the change of pace without an, a specific so called move is still for me the difference maker but what's your thoughts on teaching this because i know you're not you're not trying to get everything at 100 miles an hour right no um is is a very important distinction 100% is not just as fast as possible 100% is the best the best possible and then in order to develop which me will mean 101% or 102%, we need to do everything as best as we can. Faster is not better, but better can mean that it's more sudden change of direction, a quicker change of uh, tempo. But better football is often played at a higher tempo, which is why I think some coaches try to do a thousand toe taps in, in, in 30 seconds because of that misunderstanding but if you look if you look at someone like Sergio Busquets he's or he was the one of the best at recognizing when to speed down when to speed up and exactly how to do it and he's he's one of those one one v one players who a lot of defensive midfielders central midfielders can, should look at in order to develop that uh, skill and he often looks like he's doing things quite slowly and then there's a change of something and magically he, he's 
is facing forwards with the ball, even though he was under hard pressure, heavy pressure. You use a quote in your book from Picasso. Love this. Every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. Do you think, as a coaching community, that as the game becomes more tactically structured, we reduce the ability for players to find creativity? Yes. Not just because of the game being more tactical, but also because of the perceived risk. The risk of losing the ball, the risk of playing sideways, the risk of playing backwards, risk of dribbling. And so there's so many things that young kids are told to avoid and therefore they become limited to, in many cases, kicking the ball as far away as possible. And I think both session design and coach behaviours are key of how to change this. I think we need to make uh, uh, sessions challenging for the brain and for the for, for the feet. Because if we then have that constant challenge uh, where we create chaotic situations, they all the players will always have to look for a solution. Um, they have to decide which of the solutions is most applicable most appropriate then they have to execute it and as long as they keep making these decisions and looking around for uh, better solutions they can just develop that creativity but if we have lazy drills like passing exercises where it's always the same pattern and they just move after the ball etc etc they can we can take away that creative thinking yeah, it's fascinating because that risk, it can go so deep that that risk can be giving the ball away or yeah. that risk can also be being different. And I am really fascinated by the fact that dribblers, again, when I was growing up, the dribblers were, there was videos of the Maradonas, the George Bests, Chrissy Waddles with the long hair, players that were different in terms of they were a little bit of a maverick about them someone that could carry the ball someone that could go at people right now when we're looking at so many parents coming to the game do you think that's a factor when the parents are standing on the sideline and little johnny is a dribbler but little johnny's not passing to steve who has brought his whole family to the match and <laughs> you know what i mean because I, I do feel that now we've got, there's almost social pressure on players from a very, very early age to fit in this culture of togetherness. And yeah. does that draw away from someone who is going to be an artist? Because there can't be 20 artists on a team. That's just not life. But <laughs> are we then dismissing the the chance we have of developing the one or two special talents? My uh, hypothesis is that the players in youth football, uh, especially in Norway, but I'm not sure how it is here in England or in America, but the magic players, the mavericks in youth football, uh, started to play organized football later. So their first meeting with football, first meeting with uh, sort of the competition there was just with no parents uh, around 
no coaches. It was just uh, some players and uh, a football. And that's where they learned that dribbling, that one v one mentality, uh, as well as the ability to do it. Because most of very young children introduction football sessions, they have passing exercises, go two and two play, pass the ball to each other. When they play a game, they want everyone to pass to each other, and they want to promote that collective game instead of uh, prioritizing individual player development which is a shame. Another area that did you talk about, the objectives of a coach, number one, player development, number two, personal development, number three, club development. And and I wanted to get your, your thoughts on how clubs should be promoting youth development in addition to running sessions, winning games. What should that club be about? I think it's about helping players helping people, helping young people develop into uh, taking, learning life lessons from from football. So learning to compete, learning to deal with stress, learning to, to do all these things and both in the environment of the football club, of the match, but also being able to take this out into, into education, into um, work, when they grow older, I think the clubs, the the clubs coaches, the youth coaches have a responsibility to teach the just the values of the club and uh, and do their best to live up to the culture. Because if they set the standard high there with their behavior, kids will follow. But if the coach is just preaching culture and preaching the values, but not living up to it themselves. Uh, players, they they will see the mismatch. They won't gain as much from it. So every coach, I'm guessing, 99.9% of coaches believe that they promote the, the right values. Where do you see differences? What do you see the difference makers in coaches that are actually going above and beyond? What, what specific actions or behaviors separate these coaches? The first time I went to um, a coaching course with Raymond Verheyen, um, it was a bit of a, a shock experience. My team was in a at a tournament while I was in the course, uh, so I I tried to check the phone, tried to go on the phone and see how they were getting on, and he immediately immediately saw it, and he he stopped and he said, "Oh." Is what's on the phone more important than this? And he followed up with, "Are you okay with your players being on on their phone instead of listening to the coach while you're in the dressing room?" I said no, and I too thought I was a good example for my players, but I think it's it's a lot. It's a lot more difficult than we coaches think, because it's not just around our players that we have to keep a high standard, but it's in it's in preparation for training, in preparation for game, um, while we're there, obviously, um, and just in life in general, we just have to live up to quite a high standard in order in order to be able to 
tell our players to do it. Last one for you. You're you're doing a study on the effects of early specialization on development and something that I'm sure would have a lot of education awareness for the for the coaching community over here. Are there any findings that that you can give us right now or and what's ahead? Yeah, so for my undergraduate degree at Solent in Southampton, I researched the effects of early specialization on Norwegian footballers and how how have the best players today made it to where they are? Uh, what did they used to do uh, to get to get to where they are today? And first, you need some some context about the region, about the Norwegian sporting uh, situation, because because of the climate and culture, it used to be football as a summer sport. And in the winter, people would be skiing or playing ice hockey or something like that. So everyone would do one winter sport, one summer sport. But with better facilities and more professionalized football development programs, uh, football has now become an all-year sport for many. And basically, I wanted to investigate sort of how have the top players today how have their pathways been and i looked at i had a questionnaire that i sent to some players in the top division first division second division third division and then compared the pathways of the people in the top division the top two divisions and um, the bottom two divisions there and 50-50 in both groups have played other sports while growing up so that just means that most Norwegians play uh, more than one sport so it means that it's 50-50 so half of most people half of the population has played more than one sport whereas half only played football and that's regardless of how, how good they go on to become but ultimately the study suggested that better players and engaged in higher volumes of football trainings and unorganized play, while a majority of the participants participated in other sports. The trend is that better players specialize in football between the ages of 13 and 15. Um, I I finished uh, the study now. Um, I'm happy to share it with anyone who's interested in it. Yeah, very, very interesting. As well over here, when in the US, where it comes to so many opportunities to play different sports and the variety of different sports. For example, when I grew up in Ireland, you know, Gaelic football, rugby, soccer were all very, very consistent in their themes of, of the type of sport and the type of skills needed in each one. But over here, Football, baseball, basketball, <laughs> they're all over the place. So yeah. I suppose for, for coaches that are bemoaning uh, little Johnny, he, we make so much progress with him in the spring and then he goes and plays basketball for, for three months. You know, what can you, what advice would you have for them coaches at the, at the youth level? In my understanding from after having done that study uh, is that it's like kids need to train football or they need to be physically active 
for more than that one football uh, session they have a week or more than the two se- football sessions they have a week. Whether that is by playing basketball or football or um, running around in the streets with their friends doesn't seem that important. But the older they become, um, the more important is it that they practice more and more football. And then sort of that um, generalization of uh, sports, uh, that they should have some experience with different sports. For me, that has to be the responsibility of the football club to organize. Instead of the players playing different sports, having different coaches, different teammates, and having all these so different arenas to compete in, the football club should be able to say, okay, for the next two months, uh, once a week, we will play basketball or uh, we will go swimming. And especially in pre-season, for like, okay, we'll warm up 20 minutes every training uh, for this month by playing handball. And you can get that diversity of movement in through the football club, through the football session. It doesn't have to be that each athlete has to go and do something else. But I think that's, that just leads to a lot of pressure, a lot of fatigue on that kid. So the club should essentially provide those different experiences within their own structure of playing different sports? I think so. Um, so use an example from my from Volarenga, where I used to work. With our grassroots youth teams there, um, they used to have the opportunity to go to uh, a boxing club once a week with the team and with the age group above and sometimes the age group below. And they would go there. It would just be the our players. It would be a, a proper boxing coach. And it was just in preseason. So for two or three months, one time a week, they could go there. They could have training in boxing uh physical physical training and the football coach was there to watch that's interesting so hopefully we'll have some of these uh, big clubs in the u.s that'll start becoming ex-soccer club with a baseball club as well <laughs> you could have you could have the wheels turning this morning as coaches are big <laughs> coffee Brilliant, brilliant. Jonas, thank you so much. A fantastic insight and, and a lot of great stuff for coaches to take with them. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me here. I listen to the podcast a lot, so it was nice of you to invite me. Thanks so much to Jonas for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I don't work at youth development. I haven't worked on a youth side for quite some time, but I am absolutely fascinated. I said it in the podcast by this production I suppose if you want to call it of player development trying to create skillful creative players and it's just really intricate it's really complex culture does play a role not just in culture in the club but also culture where they're from uh, of course and I think it's trying to get that balance right if it's even a balance between the structure of teaching skill work and there are certain principles that 
are obviously consistent throughout the years but then there's also this creative phase which apologies for the 20th time I've said this on the podcast but when I was growing up it was a different culture because we could watch match of the day we could watch football focus we would then have the freedom to go out and play and we would play without any interruption or without any instruction and that allowed us to be creative, to try things, to fail, to dream, try and be our idols, all these things that I don't think young kids today have the luxury of doing. And that's not a knock on society today. That's just the way it is. I'm I'm a father and I definitely wouldn't allow my kids to go out and play in the streets and see you at dinner time. I'll shout your name out and come on in. That's just not the world we live in anymore. So if the world has changed in terms of safety and in terms of a little bit more structure and more coaches coming into their environments and they're getting exposed to coaches earlier, then how are we as coaches creating an environment where they can still dream, they can still experiment, they can still try and they won't be suffocated by instructions and constant coaching from the sidelines, either from parents or from the coach themselves. And you know, I do believe that every coach has the best interests at heart, but specifically telling every player that they can't toe punt the ball. When Romario scored one of the most unique World Cup goal toe pokes of all time, and little things like that there, you know, allowing them just to be able to be creative, I think is really, really important. So looking at what Jonas is doing there, and I would highly recommend checking out his, his e-books because not only has he got the structure of the the research and the context of the game and the the work that he's taken from all these different courses and all these different instructors and coaches that he's been around but he's also then mixing that with the most important aspect for me and that is bringing it back to the young players and allowing and creating an environment where those young players can be themselves and those young players can learn to love the game because that's the main thing. We want young players to go out and experiment with the ball and we want players to fall in love with the game and fall in love with practicing about it and fall in love with reading about it and fall in love with getting better at it and fall in love with learning more about it than every aspect of it. And I think the the challenges that are facing young players today is how to expose them to the structure of soccer whilst trying to grow that love and passion for the game that all coaches have that's why we're all coaches right we love the game to a level that we want to make a career out of it and help other people so it's interesting every Monday is our player development day it's a topic that I really enjoy talking about on the modern soccer coach community platform so if you haven't got on there yet please come on ahead take a look every Monday we're going to talk about things just in the game just something from maybe it's a look down memory lane at what young players back in the day had maybe it's a a look at what players today are doing that can that can help our players and help our environments and keep that conversation going so We'd love to hear your thoughts on that as always at Gary Kernine on Instagram at Gary Kernine on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I will see you next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.